Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Botti in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 20th, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A new study says much of Africa will be unsustainable by 2050. The first thing that, you know, we hope to do through this report specifically is to essentially, you know, identify and rally support for the countries that are facing the most challenges. World Vision says skyrocketing food prices are contributing to global hunger. We are focused on South Sudan. Kenya wants to renegotiate loans for a Chinese-built railway. Also, a look at breast cancer in Kenya. Nigerian authorities are hopeful after massive oil theft busts. Botswana expresses concern over an influx of asylum seekers. These nations will continue to suffer influx uh, of refugees because of the failed governance uh, systems in our region. And we'll have a third of 10 profiles of finalists in the first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for the continent's startups. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. A new report says much of Africa will be unsustainable by 2050 due to high levels of air pollution, poor sanitation, high homicide rates, and substantial ecological threats, as well as high population. The report by the Australia-based Institute for Economics and Peace, IEP, says 23 of the 27 so-called hotspot countries, which face the worst ecological threats and have low societal resilience, are in sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East, North Africa, and South Asia. The report also says two of the so-called megacities with more or 10 million residents are in Africa. Lagos and Kinshasa are characterized by poor sanitation, substantial ecological threats, and high levels of petty and organized crime. I asked Michael Collins, executive director of IEP Americas, just what is responsible for this dire prediction. We have sort of seen or see through this kind of data, this intimate connection that exists between conflict and ecological degradation over time. And a lot of these underlying measures, measures related to the food insecurity, water stress, uh, as well as natural disasters, elements related in part or aggravated by climate change, but also occurring outside of climate change, have been deteriorating. A number of them had been improving progressively over the decades. For example, with regards to security, in particular, since 2014, we're seeing not only a reversal of trends, um, but also in terms of future predictions, significant deteriorations in a number of ecological threats worldwide. Among the factors you cite, the high levels of pollution and poor sanitation, I agree with the poor sanitation. How does pollution come in? Yeah, well, pollution is actually a very difficult one to track down. You can obviously make calculations and assumptions based on overall levels of emissions. But one of the challenges is that, you know, oftentimes it's not necessarily the countries that are emitting pollutions that are actually necessarily recipients of the impacts of that, right? For example, in sub-Saharan African countries are responsible for less than, you know, 4% of overall emissions worldwide. But um, it's quite likely that they're going to suffer a lot of the significant consequences. So pollution in itself doesn't form one of the underlying metrics of the ones that we explore here. We look at this from a broader perspective, again, primarily through food insecurity, water stress, natural disasters, and population growth. Although the report this year does focus in on megacities and some of the challenges that a lot of the countries that are not only potentially less peaceful currently, but are also subject to significant ecological threats, will be facing because of the rapid population growth and this ongoing tendency for people in rural areas to move to more urban areas, which is creating knock-on effects and challenges 
with regards to things like, for example, pollution, affordable, safe housing and water and sanitation. You mentioned mega cities. What are some of the uh, top mega cities that will be impacted? So in the report, we identify 32, I believe, current megacities. That's cities of over 10 million people. And we identify another 12 cities that will become or are expected to become megacities over the next 20 years. Um, So they are very much kind of sort of spread around the globe, but in particular, cities that we've identified as having potential challenges over the the next 30 years, particularly in relation to Africa, include uh, Kinshasa, Nairobi, Lagos, and some broader examples of this in other countries, for example, include uh, Baghdad, Laos, Delhi, and, and Kolkata in South Asia. So what do you think can be done to minimize the impact of this the first thing that, you know, we hope to do through this report specifically is to essentially, you know, identify and rally support for the countries that are facing the most challenges. I mean, that's number one, being able to identify where the next point of crisis is and the intersection of all of these different ecological threats. But, you know, the reality of it is that there's no punctual solution. This is definitely something that really needs to be addressed systemically. Now, it can be addressed systemically in a local way or a regional way, but you can do more concrete efforts. Now, all of these things are combined and all of these things interact in complex ways. Now, from particular components, we do think that there is an opportunity to make significant improvements in things like water capture, which are, of course, the underlying basis for improving levels of food security over time, both from a small entrepreneurial perspective, but also from a sort of a mega investment perspective at the national level as well. Michael, thank you so much again for talking with us on Daybreak Africa. James, it was a wonderful opportunity. Best of luck. Thank you very much. Michael Collins is Executive Director of the Institute for Economics and Peace Americas. He was speaking with us from New York City. A new report by the global humanitarian organization World Vision says skyrocketing food prices are contributing to the global hunger crisis affecting children who are at the risk of death. World Vision's research found a sharp rise in the cost of food in some countries like Sudan that has had 143% increase in prices in 2021. World Vision policy advisor Hanan Chagin tells viewers John Tanza that Sudan's food crisis needs urgent attention There is a continued hunger crisis that is continuing to mount, and we're seeing this manifest most severely in countries in East Africa and in parts of Asia. And that's due really to a series of compounding factors, but really hunger is being driven by what we're calling the three C's, conflict, climate change, and the ongoing impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And really, this plays out differently depending on the context, but those are the three, really, the main genres that you could categorize the hunger crisis in. Looking at a country like Sudan that has had its own problems for years, they're affected by the two Cs, conflict and uh, COVID-19. What are some of the efforts by World Vision to mitigate that problem in a country difficult to access? Yeah, just like you said, there's political instability, economic instability. We've seen poor harvests. I was just talking with a colleague in the Sudan region who was describing to me just the amounts of heavy rain and flooding that we've seen in the region since August that's going to disrupt the planting season and and will definitely affect outputs of that harvest. But, um, you know, World Vision, we have a presence in hunger hotspots around the world. And as we began to see the size and scale of this global crisis, we felt the need to mobilize a global response declaration. And, and the goal of that response is to reach 22 million people in 25 specific countries, and Sudan is included in that. 
Um, you know, our field teams have expertise in leadership and cash and food and nutrition programming, as well as being the largest implementing partner of the World Food Program. So in Sudan, we have five WFP partnerships, as well as a multi-sectoral response program focused on livelihoods interventions, primary health care, wash services, which is clean water, water sanitation services, and nutrition screening and treatments in South and East Darfur and Blue Nile. But how big is the magnitude of the issue we're saying? Yeah, so we just recently put out a, a report called our Price Shocks Report. And, and basically, you know, in addition to evaluating these drivers that I talked about before, it looks at specific countries to see how much the cost of a common food basket has increased in the past year. And in Sudan, you know, that was one of the most staggering increases with 143%. And again, that's that's a result of the compounding factors that I described earlier. Um, and we found that it takes about nine days to earn enough money to purchase a food basket in Sudan compared to 1.2 hours for the same food basket in the United States. So our report is really the average of um, the cost of the food basket across the country. But there are data points and reports that indicate, again, that the highest cost for a local food basket in Sudan um, was recorded in South and East Darfur, followed by the Blue Nile State. Hannah Chogan is World Vision's policy advisor. She was speaking with viewers John Tanza via Skype in Washington, D.C. Kenya wants to renegotiate a multi-billion dollar loan from China that was used to build a major railway. The country's incoming transport minister told lawmakers that Kenya is up to date on its payments, but cannot continue with the current 20-year schedule. Mohammed Yusuf reports from Nairobi. Kenya's transport minister, Dezenate, said the country cannot continue to pay Chinese loans under the current terms. Answering questions from a parliamentary committee, Kipchumba Murkomen said the country will have to ask for an extended period to pay, especially in regard to the loans used to build what is known as the Standard Gauge Railway. So there was a strategic decision that was made at that time that we take, we invest in the infrastructure, and government of Kenya pays back within 15 to 20 years. Now we are choked with the uh, loans because we are paying 8 million per year to the lenders uh, for the SGR. We are willing to continue paying the amount that was set. We should be willing, led by the president, to renegotiate the loan period. Kenya borrowed $5 billion to build the railway line from the port of Mombasa to the city of Naivasha, west of Nairobi. The railway was open for business in 2017 and the government forced businesses to transport goods by rail to help repay the loan. The railway, however, has lost money. It becomes impossible to be able to pay that loan by revenue that comes from the railways. And even in 50 years, it will never break even if you load the loans to the railway. Kenya's previous government is accused of overborrowing to finance development projects, which has also increased corruption. China also financed a 27-kilometer expressway in Nairobi, costing $734 million. Most of Kenya's infrastructure deal with China has been shrouded in secrecy. The agreement that led to the newly built railways has remained secret despite a court order demanding it to be made public. China accounts for one-third of Kenya's external debt. The new Kenyan government under President William Ruto has said it will reduce reliance on foreign loans and borrow more in the domestic market. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi.
are listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, October 20th. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Botswana is expressing concern over an influx of asylum seekers who fled from countries where they had already been granted refugee status. Nearly 700 refugees have arrived from neighboring Zimbabwe, citing poor conditions at the refugee camp, while others have come from South Africa, driven out by xenophobic attacks. Umkundise Dube reports from Haburoni. Addressing journalists Tuesday, Botswana's Minister of Justice, Machana Shamukuni, said the country seen the arrival of onward movement Islam seekers. He says Botswana expressed its concern over the issue at a recent executive meeting of the UN Refugee Agency in Geneva, Switzerland. These are asylum seekers that have been granted international protection elsewhere, but they still come to Busa to seek asylum again. Because once you are afforded international protection elsewhere, the expectation even in the international community is that, you know, you should stay there so that, you know, you are protected, enjoy protection there. But when you proceed to another country and to seek protection again, when you were accorded protection, accorded protection in another jurisdiction, then it, it becomes problematic. The majority of the 688 recent arrivals, originally from the Democratic Republic of Congo, more recently lived at the Tongokara refugee camp in Zimbabwe. Shamukuni says others are Somalis who left South Africa due to xenophobic attacks. Uh, on the challenges here onward movement as to why they decide to leave camp areas where they are given international protection and they come to Botswana to seek asylum again. It, it talks to the conditions in some of the camps. Conditions in some of the camps, the issues like you know housing, the conditions and the status of you know housing, issues of education and, and uh, issues of access to health. Uh, these are the reasons that they stayed. But also recall in South Africa there was that issue has xenophobia. That issue has xenophobia. It drove a lot of uh, them, particularly the Somalis. Adriano Nuvunga is director of the Center for Democracy and Development in Maputo, Mozambique. He says Botswana's peace and stability are magnets for fleeing refugees. And Botswana is one of those uh, victims due to its political stability and some possibilities of people to find uh, um, uh, opportunities, uh, survival, but also uh, the welcoming nature of the Botswana people. So uh, these nations will continue to suffer influx uh, of refugees because of, uh, the, uh, of the failed uh, governance uh, systems uh, in our region which triggers conflicts, and conflicts um, uh, 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 trigger people to uh, seek refuge. So it's a vicious cycle of bad governance. Zimbabwean born Watson Chibi, who has spent nearly two decades as a refugee in Botswana, says Islam seekers are lured to the country due to prospects of a better life. Oh, pertaining the issue of uh, refugees from Somalia and DRC, coming to Botswana, it's, 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 a, it's an issue that when I was also a refugee, was also worrisome. In, in Botswana, when you are from Somalia or you are from DRC, surely, surely resettlement is very easy. 
people are going for resettlement from those two countries. Due to its isolated location, Botswana's refugee population has never been high and is now down to 1,019 from more than 3,000 three years ago as the UN Refugee Agency scales down operations. The majority of refugees, mostly from Namibia and Zimbabwe, were repatriated over the last two years. Mkondisi Dube for VOA News, Haboroni. Nigeria's National Petroleum Corporation, the NNPC, says weeks of intense crackdown on oil thieves have significantly reduced the scale of theft in the oil-rich Niger Delta and says the country will soon boost overall oil production. However, critics say the deeper problem of corruption has not been solved and question whether those behind the theft will be prosecuted. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja. NNPC Director Mele Kiari spoke Tuesday during an energy and labor summit in Abuja. Kiari said recent raids and collaboration with local security agencies have significantly reduced the magnitude of oil theft in Nigeria's oil-rich Niger Delta region. He said he was optimistic that Nigeria will have access to more crude oil and revenue in the coming weeks. Last week, joint operations by Nigerian security operatives and agents working for a former oil region militant, government Ikbemupolo, also known as Tompolo, cracked down on massive oil looting in the Niger Delta. The government says the operations shut down 58 illegal taps on oil facilities, including a line connected to Nigeria's Transforcados pipeline that had siphoned oil for nearly a decade. Benga Komolafe, head of the Nigerian Upstream Petroleum Regulatory Commission, attended the energy summit. He spoke to VOA via phone. We are working in collaboration with the security forces and the NMPC, and the nation may witness in this I have the streaming of uh, one of the major arteries for crude oil transportation, that is the Focados line. Nigerian authorities awarded a pipeline surveillance contract worth millions of dollars to Tom Polo in August in a desperate bid to stop oil theft that was causing a loss of at least half a million barrels per day. Authorities say the move is paying off, but some critics note that authorities have not publicly identified those behind the rampant theft. Tompolo and his security agents say that oil companies, the military and local residents colluded to steal oil for their own profit. Last week, authorities burned a vessel full of stolen oil without conducting an investigation a move that generated fierce criticism but was defended by Nigeria's defense chief. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. The U.S. Africa Business Center of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce is convening its first annual Africa Digital Innovation Competition for African Startups. VOA is working as a media partner with the Africa Business Center on this initiative. Out of 17,000 candidates in 50 countries in Africa, the top 10 finalists have been decided. And for the next two weeks, we'll bring you a look at each one. Today, we hear from David Unjonjo from Kenya. His startup, Grow Agric, provides a platform to help small and mid-sized farmers to farm better and earn more. Startups and small and medium-sized enterprises are changing the way Africa does business through innovation and technology. From agriculture, telecommunication, health, and so many sectors, young entrepreneurs are infusing vibrancy and energy into the African economy. 
Big Business is watching and ready to support. Through the 2022 Africa Digital Innovation Competition, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and its prestigious partners are providing cash awards and mentorship support to three of Africa's top innovators chosen from 17,000 candidates from 50 countries in North, Central, East, West, and Southern Africa. The Voice of America interviewed the top 10 candidates from where the finalists will be picked. Here is one of them. My name is David Jonjo. I'm 38 years old. I'm the COO and co-founder at Grow Greek, and I am a proud Kenyan. We applied primarily because um, we met the criteria um, once we saw the announcement uh, coming out. And so this was an opportunity for us to spread our gospel um, you know, to, to other markets and to other people to get uh, you know, sort of recognition from, from, from others um, outside there in the market and people in, in other countries um, is a big achievement for ourselves. So it's something that we are proud of. Basically, Grow Greek uh, is an end-to-end solution providing farmers with logistical, financial, um, and market support. So we work with farmers from inception when they're starting. We train farmers. Um, we provide them with financing for, for all the inputs that they require. Um, we help monitor their farming process. We put, we've created digital record-keeping tools um, where farmers are able to manage their farms um, and track how well they're performing. At the end of the farming cycle, then we help them also sell their produce um, at, for competitive prices. There's a huge gap um, across Africa in terms of, of, of food production, and we, are, we, are, we haven't been able to feed our population. So by helping these farmers increase their production, then we're also helping to fill that gap and ensure there is enough food to go around for the population. We also have programs where we're also en enabling the youth, um, so where we work with experienced farmers and we match them with, with um, a, farm, a newbie, so to speak, farmers who are, who are setting up. And through learning from them and ha having that knowledge transfer, then we're able to sort of improve um, and create employment opportunities. So the first thing we will do when we win the competition um, will be to celebrate um, with, with, with our farmers, um, with the people within the team that, that we've been really working hard um, to get up to this point, um, and then use the resources that, that are going to be deployed um, uh, to us um, to expand our offering, um, to improve on our processes, um, and get to a point where we're able to move the needle towards obtaining our vision of having over half a million uh, farmers by the end of 2025. That was David Mujonjo, the founder of Grow Agric, a platform to help farmers in Kenya. And that's it for this Thursday, October 20th edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa crew, I am James Barton in Washington saying, have a great day and please be safe whatever you do. A recent study suggests breaching the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit above pre-industrial global temperatures could trigger a series of tipping points that may lead to irreversible changes to our climate system. Hello, I'm Rick Pantaleo. Study lead author David McKay joins me to talk about the consequences of setting off these tipping points. Listen Saturday and Sunday to the Science Edition of Press Conference USA on The Voice of America. Sports fans, brighten your day by tuning into the sunny side of sports Monday through Friday at 1630 and 1830 UTC. Join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash VOA Sunny and on Twitter at VOA Sunny Sports. Or check out the blog at blogs.voanews.com forward slash sunny. It's the sunny side of sports right here on The Voice of America. 
Join your host, Larry London, for Border Crossings, VOA's worldwide music request hour, every weekday at 1500 Universal. Tune in to hear your favorite songs and artists, win prizes and giveaways, and get the latest scoop from exclusive celebrity interviews. Send in requests to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or call 202-618-2077 to have your favorite music played for the entire world. Don't miss Border Crossings every weekday at 1500 Universal. 